Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. And before we get going with today's show, I want to mention an upcoming BIV event. February 28th at the Shangri-La Hotel, the newspaper is facilitating an expert retirement-ready panel discussion on how and when to retire and how to embrace what should be the most triumphant years of a longer life. More details can be found at BIV.com slash events. And former U.S. President Barack Obama, he visits Vancouver next month, and it's begging the question, how exactly does one go about booking big names like this to come speak in Vancouver? Today, I'm going to talk to Talent Bureau co-founder Jeff Jacobson all about the business of booking. I also want to highlight another event here, February 21st at the Shangri-La Hotel. We're going to have another expert panel, this time focused on due diligence and valuation when buying a business. Go to BIV.com slash events for more details. And a little later on today, Craig Patterson from RetailInsider.com. He's going to join us to discuss big changes coming to the grocery scene in Metro Vancouver, as well as Uber Eats expansion plans for Canada, and why Mountain Equipment Co-op is getting in on the travel industry game. Now, let's get into a discussion on the business of booking talent. I went to a keynote address a few years back and I saw Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. He was absolutely just mesmerizing the crowd there. And it really got me, you know, asking the question and it's been in my brain ever since, you know, how is it that these high profile names continue to make a living after, you know, they've retired from their best known vocation? And we have another big high profile name dropping in on Vancouver in March. It's former U.S. President Barack Obama. And so I'm pleased to welcome our next guest. I think he can offer a lot of insights about what maybe Obama will be commanding in a few weeks. And I'd like to say hello and thank you to Jeff Jacobson. He's a co-founder and principal of Talent Bureau. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. Okay. So you have booked the likes of, say, Stephen Harper, Christine Sinclair, even Anderson Cooper. What is this process like? Do, do you have like clients come to you and say, hey, we're interested in so-and-so? Or do they say, hey, who's available? What is kind of step one? You know, it's interesting. It works both ways, right? Sometimes we have our buyer clients, our organizer clients who come to us and say, I really want X person. And we sort of go on that mission to help them lock down whoever it is. Um, some cases it's possible. In some cases it's not. But we work really hard to to execute on their behalf. In other cases, they say, hey, listen, we really need somebody to talk about leadership, change management, collaboration, innovation, whatever the topic is. And we send them almost like a menu of speakers that we think would be an appropriate fit for their event or conference. Uh, and in other situations, we're working with the speaker who says, I really want to do more of these types of engagements. So it can come from both the talent side and also the organizer slash buyer side. Okay, so stay with me here because I was having a conversation with a buddy about a year or two ago, and I, I think Lou Ferrigno, the original <laughs> Hulk, was in town. Yeah. And we couldn't figure out, like, is this what this guy does now? Like, how can he make any real money on this? We, we kind of tried to look into, like, how much people <laughs> on, like, the, the comic book convention circuit were making, and there wasn't really, like, any sort of clear idea about what was going on there. Tell me a little bit. I, I mean, is there a spectrum of what people could be making here on the speaker circuit? Absolutely. And so Lou Ferrigno is a funny one. We've actually booked him before and then he reneged on us. Oh, wow. It was a weird, it was a weird experience. We'll talk about that offline. Sure. No, but, uh, <laughs> but, so the Comic-Cons, just to give you a little insight, particularly on Comic-Cons, 
it's a bit of a mixed tier because if you notice at Comic Cons, it's sort of a potpourri. You have your massive headliners, then you're kind of almost middle of the pack stars, and then you're like, who the heck are those people? So you've got your Walking Dead cast, and, you, <laughs> yeah. and you've got your ex Power Rangers. Exactly, down below. exactly. Okay, you gotcha. have your person in the background of a episode of The Sopranos, and so <laughs> like a guy like Shatner, he would get a a guarantee regardless of how many autographs he signs and how many pictures he takes. So his his deal would be flat at a high price. Then in some cases there'll be stars who are getting paid a guarantee plus a cut of the the amount of autographs they sell and photos they take because those are all a per head thing. Okay. You got to pay an x number of of dollars to get a photo or, or an autograph. Then the third tier are people who are just paid on a door deal. So Again, the proverbial background actor in The Sopranos will show up to this convention and they'll get, call it 70% of their, of their sales um, in exchange for the slot at the convention, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm, fast, I'm still fascinated by this. <laughs> and I, I'm curious, though, I mean, do you have any idea how much maybe somebody like Barack Obama might be able to command at this point? I don't know the exact number. Yeah. It's a lot. So I can refer you to a couple of... of recent articles that discuss these fees. The New York Times had a piece, I think it was last week, about Vice President Joe Biden speaking at a chamber of commerce in Michigan. And they wrote in the piece that his fees were 200,000 USD. And that's Obama's vice president. So I think you can, you know, do the math as to what kind of numbers President Obama would be getting. But I also want to say conversely, a person like him, you can't just make an offer blindly write a check and expect to get him. I think he's a lot more thoughtful about the types of engagements that he does. I know people have been working to bring him here to Vancouver for, you know, years since he really just left office in, in, you know, January of 17. So there's a lot more to it than just writing a check. It has to be the right kind of organization. And frankly, uh, from what I've heard about him, he really only will visit a part of the world if he often has other business that has to take place there, period. So I know when he did an engagement in Montreal last year, he had dinner that night with Prime Minister Trudeau. So I'm not sure what was prepared first, but he wasn't just there to do his thing and and collect his paycheck. Right. Well, here's my theory, and I'm I'm obviously going to be totally wrong, but uh, <laughs> Michelle Obama, she's uh, done Vancouver before. She's coming back pretty soon as well. I think she must be telling her husband, look, Vancouver, uh, great town. I'm doing well with these shows. Why don't you give it a shot? And he's like, yeah, I, I could probably make a pretty penny. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, why Husband not? Husband and wife, right? they, they must talk. Yeah, right? I know. Certainly, it probably beats, you know, Omaha on the book tour. No disrespect to Omaha. But I think that, uh, I think that you know, the truth is, I mean, they have different agents. And really, like, they're not, they're probably not coordinating their their schedules that much around each other. Um, it's funny. People have said to me, do you think Michelle's going to come out when President Obama's here and vice versa? And I can say with absolute certainty the answer is no. Well, it's going to kind of cut into like her appeal, like her uh, leverage going forward, right? If like she, if she'll do anything or she'll just walk up on stage, maybe people would be less inclined to give her big bucks. Well, and also, I mean, she's playing Rogers Arena. So she's selling, you know, 15,000 tickets in the city and and he's playing the convention center about, you know, 3,500 tickets for their, where they're situating him. So she's going to be performing, speaking in front of a five times bigger crowd. So let's say you book a big name like this. How much of it, especially for a name like the Obamas, how much of it is kind of a security issues that have to be taken into consideration too? Enormously. Uh, You know, they both travel with Secret Service. 
And so, you know, the RCMP, because of treaties with the U.S., will donate some of their time to help secure, you know, the motorcade and add to it, stuff like that. But as an event organizer, you're going to be assuming pretty big costs, just even housing the Secret Service. I'm not sure how many um, members President Obama will have with him, but I would suspect at least eight, eight or ten. And so they're going to be probably not too visible to the person, average person walking through the doors, but they'll be there and they'll have to come and advance the site in advance and all that stuff. So it's a huge factor. And um, obviously too, I mean, even just a, a where a president eats, you know, that, that has to be secured. So his movements are probably going to be determined pretty far in advance and, and security will be a big factor in all of that. So I, I do recall the RCMP factoid from a, a little while ago, because I think uh, I, was it Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump? They were in town. They're skiing or something like that. Yes, and they snuck in. Yeah, a lot of Canadians <laughs> were like, "Wait, my, I'm, am I footing the bill as a taxpayer with the RCMP? You know, having to uh, take care of their security?" Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think uh, Donald Trump Jr. has snuck in a few times, uh, seeking asylum. No, he sure. snuck in. He snuck. <laughs> no, he snuck in. Uh, he snuck in to do some fishing trips, and I mean, again, you know, that's that's their job, and I think that. One thing that's great about the relationship as, you know, up and down as, as it's been between our two countries is that, you know, we'll always take care of our dignitaries and, you know, no matter what. And yeah, you know, should we be paying for Jared Kushner's, you know, security at a ski lodge? Maybe not, but I hope that at least there is reciprocity for our for our guys and gals. Well, exactly. Yeah. And look, you actually kind of alluded to something that I was going to ask you about, you know, how maybe uh, people would like to come here more than, say, Omaha, Nebraska. Is that a bit of a draw? Is Vancouver kind of a, a nice city, a, an easy city to convince people to come and speak to? Or for most, is it just all about the dollars? If you pay me, you know, I don't know, let's say 50 grand to go to Winnipeg in February <laughs> versus, you know, Vancouver in July. I, I mean, what what consideration do a lot of people make? Only 50 grand to go to Winnipeg in February? I know, I know. I know. <laughs> I, honestly, yeah, I, I do. I, a lot of speakers that I've booked have been delighted when they have found out the event is going to be in Vancouver. Uh, it's a city that we're all so proud to live in and, and receives, you know, a lot of acclaim from people who come here internationally. And that's definitely true. I think that it's, uh, you know, and you've seen it over the years too. A lot of artists have rehearsed for their tours here. You two rehearsed here. I think the Stones did years ago. And so it's a place that's, you know, easy living. And I think it's not, you know, there's not the quote paparazzi presence like there is in, in bigger markets and, and whatnot. So I think definitely people want to come here. But on the other hand, it's not going to prevent uh, a talent from accepting an engagement in another city because they don't like it as much. I recall, I, this must have been 10, 15 years ago, but they're filming like an X-Men movie in Victoria and, and one of the local newspapers was just hounding uh, the actors for like one day. And I think they got so much backlash from like local readers against this sort of stuff. Like there really isn't that paparazzi culture <laughs> that is, here in Vancouver, which that is, is nice. That is the most Canadian thing. Yeah. Just like telling people to stop hounding the celebrities as they're, as they're filming. Yeah. 
That's great. So I don't know if you had the chance to watch that Fire Festival documentary that was on Netflix, but uh, they tackle a lot of the influencers that uh, convince people to put down a lot of money on this sham of a festival for music. And I'm curious you know, what kind of influence these influencers have, so to speak, with regards to, I don't know, uh, commanding big bucks and, well, just convincing people to maybe buy this product if they push it on, say, social media. It's a really interesting question, and the documentary was wild. I really want to watch the Hulu one, but yeah. we don't get Hulu here. I've been so. looking for it. Yeah. yeah it's I don't bummer. know how to do torrents, so someone has to help me with that. But, like, <laughs> it's definitely changed the landscape. I sort of call it the democratization of talent. Uh, what, what I mean by that is with this sort of Instagram social media star culture, it's really easy to get in touch with celebrities or, quote, influencers in a way that it hasn't been in years past. And it's also transformed traditional deals. So years ago, I would book a speaker for a conference and that would be kind of cut and dry. Come in, do your thing, shake a few hands, give your speech, see you later. But now it's like whoever the person is, can they please do social posts to promote the event? Can they do tweets from the event live? And those are all part of the deal, even though they're not, quote, influencers, they're more just traditional speakers or celebrities. So it's it's changed the landscape. In that documentary, they they point out that Kylie Jenner received $250,000 for one Instagram post promoting the event. And what's even crazier than that is that it seemed to be a good investment yeah. because it helped sell a lot of tickets. Yeah. So it's totally transformed that landscape of sort of booking talent. What was your take on this, though? Because one thing that kind of raised my eyebrows, though, is uh, at one point in the documentary, they're trying to take some of these influencers to court because... They had been promoting it ahead of t- the time. I don't think these influencers knew what was going to shake out with this festival. When they're when it's like six months in advance and they're saying, come to this great festival, is it really fair for them to be held accountable about what eventually unfolds? Yes and no. I think the job of good representation is to do that due diligence sure. and not just blindly take a check from whoever's throwing money at you. I would. Personally, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, no, the, the, the honest truth is, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is. Sure. And like, you know... Hundreds of thousands of dollars, photo shoot with models in the Bahamas, you know, major laser, Blink-182, cabanas, all for the, you know, the low price. It's like, <laughs> it's, you know, they bit, they bit off way more than they can chew. And I think, you know, what's interesting about that FIRE documentary is that F. Jerry, the marketing firm and uh, Instagram sort of celebrity grouping that that did the marketing for that event, they're they're one of the producers in the documentary and they almost exonerate themselves. They blame it on the promoters, but really the marketing agency should have, you know, sniffed around a little bit and said, who the heck are these guys trying to put off, put off, pull off this thing. I mean, music festivals are a really tough business. We've, we've seen a, you know, a few in our graveyard in British Columbia, right? So it's, it's it's not, we've written about it it extensively in our newspaper. it's, (laughs) It's not as easy as it looks. So I think it's, it's, you know, perhaps not, on the shoulders of the quote influencers themselves, but certainly on the people they surround themselves with. Definitely. And I do appreciate you censoring yourself when referring to them as uh, F Jerry. Uh, <laughs> for those, um, Google it if you uh, need to find out more. Um, look, if I'm like, say, an athlete or, you know, like I said at the start, you know, an astronaut and I need a transition into, say, this speaker circuit. I, I mean, a lot of them might be a little bit shaky. They're, they're not professional speakers. I, I mean, do you have any advice for somebody who's just 
making their way into something. They, they figure that they can actually do this, but what's your advice for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So what I say to clients all the time is you're not paying the top dollar for someone who's necessarily great. Your, your fee reflects your sort of notoriety. If you happen to be great as well, that's an amazing bonus almost, but it's not necessarily what uh, is responsible for the command of the fees. In terms of a person like, a, say, an astronaut or a politician who wants to break into this paid speaking world and isn't sure if they sort of have the stuff to do it, there's a couple things I would suggest. Keeping your engagements to more of an in-conversation format, like a back-and-forth moderated Q&A versus having to actually stand up there and speak, which can make people clammy and nervous for 45 minutes. So really just kind of padding it, giving structure to, to a format and preparing them almost so they don't have to get up there and, and just stand like they're giving a State of the Union address. Um, so there are bells and whistles you can you can bring into that equation to uh, to uh, make it easier for that transition to occur. So uh, for me, I, I'm a journalist. I went to journalism school. Then I, I hit the pavement and freelanced everywhere I could. Um, that's how I got into my business. There's no speaker circuit school, though. I, I mean, how did you find yourself landing into this particular industry, Jeff? That's another interesting question and journey. So when I was in university, I went to UVic and I used to organize hip hop concerts and and uh, we brought in a bunch of nostalgic acts to town, to Victoria. Uh, we brought in Bone Thugs and Harmony and uh, Questlove from The Roots and The Clips. I'm dating myself. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun, a lot of ups and downs, but it was a bit of a grimy business, late hours and, you know, a lot of entourages and, and odd requests from the talent. And I sort of said to myself, is there just a, a way I could be involved in entertainment and, and bringing acts to town without having to, you know, accommodate for these types of, you know, peculiar requests and stay up till four in the morning every night. And so on a whim, my two partners who I was organizing the concerts with and I invited Vice President Al Gore to speak at our school in 2007 through his agency in New York, thought there's no way he'll accept, no chance. It was the same year he won the Oscar, the Nobel Prize. He was he was hot. It was the perfect time. And fortunately or unfortunately for us, uh, he said yes. And in September of 2007, all of a sudden I was in the speaking business and the event uh, went off without a hitch, amazingly. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. A couple of years later, I made the transition from organizer or promoter to actually becoming an agent. Mm -hmm. But uh, really, it was sort of happenstance and the, I guess, chutzpah of a, you know, university student who, uh, you know, was determined to make an impact. So you don't have to name names. I'm putting you on the spot, but uh, can you give me an example of one of those weird requests that made you <laughs> kind of shake your head? You know, it's funny. The, the weird requests are are sort of a funny thing. Like, do you know the history of the quote rider, like the red M&Ms? Do you know? I, I've heard of this, you know, rider, but like, and it seems so bizarre to me. I, I like, I think like there, there's some comedian down in the States. He needs like a new pair of sneakers <laughs> every show that he does. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, probably. So the, the rider really got famous. It was Motley Crue, the metal band, you know, still touring, but from the eighties that, that they put red M&Ms, only red M&Ms in their bowls and their dressing rooms in their rider. And it wasn't, some crazy diva thing. They just wanted to make sure that their rider, which had all their sound requirements, technical requirements, staging requirements, and the uh, yes, the hospitality requests was being fulfilled. 
So they put the red M&Ms on page eight of a 20-page rider, and they if they got to a venue in a town and they knew that the red M&Ms were there, they would know that they would have confidence in uh-huh. all the other parts of the rider because it was actually being read. So that's the history of the rider. In terms of obscure requests, I mean, speakers, fortunately, are a little bit uh, you know more chill than musicians. I've heard that there are only certain colors that Mariah Carey wants to see in her dressing rooms. Okay. You, know, you can't have certain colors of paint. So there's some, you know, DIY painters at venues across <laughs> North America. But uh, fortunately for me, uh, speakers are, are a little calmer. Okay. They're just chilled water and some baby carrots and <laughs> they'll be happy. Yes. King size bed. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, Jeff, it was great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that was Jeff Jacobson, co-founder and principal of Talent Bureau. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. And joining us now to talk all about the latest news in retail, it is Craig Patterson, editor-in-chief at RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. So look, we've got some notable changes afoot for the grocery landscape in Metro Vancouver. Maybe let's start with downtown Vancouver. Loblaws, they're going they're going to be setting up a 50,000 square foot flagship store in the Canada Post building. What do you expect to see from this city market brand that they're going forward with downtown? Um, it sounds like it's going to be a really, really great addition to the downtown core. Um, not only will it be the largest grocery store on the downtown peninsula, but it's also going to have a whole bunch of... Uh, services. Um, it's going to have you know, a place you can sit and eat. It's going to have demonstration areas. And it sounds like it's going to be quite experiential. So it's going to be competition for other grocery stores, uh, at least in the immediate area. Yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts about the, uh, the immediate area. If you think about downtown Peninsula, I know that there's a big save on or Safeway on Robson. We have like a no frills, but I think there's like a lot of these smaller grocery outlets too. What do you think of a big giant like this? And this really is going to be a giant store coming in what is that going to do for i guess kind of the the landscape with regards to grocery downtown well uh you know i think a large grocery store it is quite often unusual for a downtown core but it's also something that i think people are going to value um i don't think it's going to necessarily take business away from say <clears throat> the safeway down on robson street near uh, denman street because um a lot of these grocery stores uh, people walk on foot to uh to, you know, utilize these grocery stores. There's quite a few people, a few thousand people live within the immediate radius of the new uh, post development where the Loblaw City Market is going in. And uh, typically people won't walk more than a few minutes to buy groceries. And again, unless they're cycling, you know, that may be a bit of a different story. But I do think that the downtown core does need, you know, a lot of grocery stores because of the density and because of the lifestyle of the population. And uh, you know, probably a couple of more grocery stores even would make sense for the downtown core, uh, you know, including in the downtown uh, south area around the Granville Bridge. And they have just actually announced that uh, one, if not two grocery stores will be going down there as well. Okay. And what do you think about this particular location? I mean, there's a lot of people walking through. How do you think, you know, who's going to be maybe kind of the target for shopping there? I think it's going to be both people that live in the area who will be, you know, getting their daily groceries and daily needs. Uh, I also think it's going to serve the office population, whether or not they're going in and you know having a grab and go meal of some sort, or if they're picking up groceries to head on the way home, depending what their commute is like. So 
I think we're going to see a mix of both locals, uh, which there are many and many, many more are coming because of condominium developments in the area. And I also think that, you know, the, the burgeoning uh, employment uh, base in the downtown core, specifically in that area, which is uh, adding a lot of office space, I think that we're going to see a lot of office workers also utilizing a store like that. Well, if we're talking about maybe some changes that are coming to the grocery scene locally, we have found out that there are 10 Safeway stores in the region that are set to rebrand as Freshco stores. What is this brand Freshco really known for, Craig? It's known for being a low-cost grocery provider. And, uh, you know, it started in Toronto. Uh, it is far more common in, you know, the central part of Canada. And it's it's great to see that the concept is now expanding. Um, you know, it, Freshco, I think, is known for being, you know, a value-priced uh, retailer. It's quite popular amongst those that are seeking, you know, grocery savings. So I think that this is a really, really great thing for Vancouver. Um, I also think that it's... Uh, uh, you know, the retailers uh, attempt to say thwart the, the entry of a brand like Aldi, for example, uh, or Lidl. There are these two German uh, grocery stores which are known for their very low prices, their reasonable quality. And, uh, you know, one or both could at some point enter the Canadian market. So uh, I think Freshco is, uh, you know, an opportunity and also, you know, a bit of an assault on that potential entry. Uh, however, Lava also tried to launch a concept similar to Aldi called The Box, and I don't believe that's really gone anywhere. So I know that was right around the time they bought Shoppers Drug Mart, and, you know, I think for competition reasons, they weren't allowed to open Mm. as many stores as they'd wanted. But, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of disruption in grocery. We're seeing, you know, grocery delivery. We're seeing click and collect. We're seeing new brands coming in and other stores, you know, improving. And it's good for the consumer, but it must be a bit of, you know, uh, create an ulcer for those who own these companies that are managing them. Well, and I also think about just, I guess, the dichotomy that exists in Vancouver when you think about how popular, say, Whole Foods is in this city. And then we have some of these uh, brands that are more kind of the the budget category. Is it really just about filling in every single category that exists among, you know, demographics, what have you here in the city? Well, I think uh, affordable grocery stores are important to a city like Vancouver. Um, You know, rents are quite high. Uh, very high, in fact, uh, real estate prices, you know, are even higher, I would say, in terms of, you know, the cost of one's income to go if they own real estate provided they didn't buy many years ago. So, uh, you know, it's getting to be expensive out there. And, uh, you know, as Vancouver gets more expensive, I think any place that uh, consumers can save money is going to be important. And, you know, there certainly always will be that Whole Foods consumer. And uh, there are a lot of people in Vancouver making, you know, pretty decent money, or at least they're willing to spend money on, you know, more expensive groceries. But, Definitely, um, you know, discounters, I think, are going to be very, very appreciated in the Vancouver market, just given how expensive it is. And given the fact that incomes in the lower mainland are actually not that high uh, yeah. overall. I mean, there are there are high earning uh, people, you know, the, the tech sector is booming in uh, Vancouver. But, they're, you know, on average, uh, salaries are, I think, being below the Canadian average in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the median household income is something around like 79000 And if you consider what maybe our home prices are, it's a little bit out of whack. And I think it absolutely puts additional strain on people's budgets. So I think that's where these grocery stores fit in. Uh, you mo- just a moment ago mentioned kind of disruption coming down on the uh, grocery sector. But let's talk a little bit about Uber Eats, maybe the impact that it could have on, say, the restaurant sector. They're planning, you know, to make its presence known in uh, you know, Canada, you know, throughout 2019, what kind of pressure is this creating for the food services industry? Well, it's interesting, you know, this, this home delivery of, you know, say food with Uber Eats. I mean, it creates a convenience for the consumer that I think the consumer is going to continue to 
demand in other areas. So um, delivery to, you know, one address, it isn't super efficient in terms of, you know, for example, if something was click and collect where you could go and pick up a meal or pick up whatever you're buying, uh, you know, the consumer's still making that last journey uh, to one central distribution point. So when you're distributing all over the place, you know, there is, I guess you'd say, a bit of a lack of efficiency. So uh, the question is, how can retailers, you know, still maintain some sort of profit uh, and operation while also offer what consumers are demanding? And I think that, uh, you know, we're for a very, very interesting time because, you know, Uber, you know, as a, as a company is losing money and, you know, it's been doing that for a while. So what can companies that can't afford to lose money do? Uh, I think we're in for some really, really interesting times and that's definitely disruption. Well, and something to consider those, you know, for all the restaurants that aren't engaging with the food delivery model, well, it means they are losing business to the restaurants that are engaging with this model. And, and I do wonder if at a certain point, because as you said, it, it's not very efficient. You can kind of tell just based on all the people wearing backpacks on bicycles or, you know, making you know stops along their uh, driving routes. I just wonder if at a certain point, do you think that maybe consumers will have to bear more of the costs of the pressures facing the restaurant industry here in this region? I would think so. Um, and the reason I pause is because also now what we're seeing is something called ghost kitchens. And what that means is You've got, you know, restaurant brands that don't tip, you know, don't have an actual dining room that you can go and sit down in. Um, basically, what uh, you know, some of these restaurants are doing is, you know, they've got a kitchen area, or you know, there's one kitchen serving multiple restaurants, and they're making food and shipping it out. So it's almost like, you know, drop shipping, or maybe that's not the best, uh, you know, best word for it. But you know, these are sort of almost virtual restaurants, you know, that don't have a physical location for you to go to. So, um, you know, if companies are able to get their costs under control and that includes shipping they don't have to pay that you know exorbitant rent that you would to actually have a dining space and right. uh, you know real, real estate prices in vancouver are expensive including commercial real estate and uh, you know a dining space can be quite large and you know to, when you pay rent on a space like that it's it costs money per square foot so perhaps there's some efficiencies that can be built but i believe you know the uber eats model has had some controversy uh you know i mean you're kind of putting your restaurant's reputation in the hands of uh, an external provider. And if they get something wrong or if they, you know, that food comes cold, it's not going to look good for the uh, restaurant. Well, why don't we tackle one last topic here? Mountain Equipment Co-op, it's moving into the travel industry. Tell me a little bit about what the goal is behind this MEC Adventures brand that they're launching. Yeah, I think on the surface, it might seem a little bit unusual that a retailer is launching uh, you know, physical expeditions. But when I thought about it for a moment, I thought, my goodness, this is brilliant because, you know, these days it's all about the experience. And, uh, you know, I suppose there's an experienced degree when you go into a mountain equipment co-op, or I should say Mac, I guess, store. But um, the fact that they're able to translate this into actual experiences where, you know, you're engaging with the brand and uh, um, doing something that you're going to remember. I mean, if you think about it, if you went on a, on a trek to Mount Everest, you're never going to forget the word Mac, you know, sure. <laughs> you know, who, who, who set this up, you know, that's going to be memorable for life. So uh, I think that in terms of brand building uh, and creating experiences around the brand itself, I just thought, my goodness, this is what a really great idea. I hope it's successful. And uh, we may see more of this from other retailers uh, that may copy this model. I, I took a look at a couple of the locations that they're going to. It is tempting and you kind of wonder, you know, uh, probably more memorable than doing yet another trip to say, you know, Orlando or, you know, London, which great places, but very touristy. This doesn't seem to have so much that touristy sort of factor. 
it's got kind of an eco bent to it. I mean, uh, it's tourism without the disruption. Uh, they look at, you know, um, partnering with, I say, local retailers and restaurants, trying to give an authentic experience. If that is, you know, uh, Mount Everest doesn't really have restaurants, but, you know, in places that would, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I think it's very much, you know, in sort of an eco uh, event to it, which, which I think is really good for messaging because, you know, there have been, reports of uh, tourists causing damage to certain places, especially if a place is sensitive, you know, with the environment uh, uh, or is historical. So, um, you know, anytime that there can be uh, limited, you know, I think the messaging is good to say that they're not going to basically ruin the environment when they're going out and touring. (laughs) It will hopefully actually, you know, bring bring positives to uh, the economies and wherever else uh, uh, they're going. So, uh, you know, as long as I think they're able to, well, I think it's brilliant. I think they address that issue as well. Well, Craig, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Batterson, Editor-in-Chief at RetailInsider.com. And that's it for the show today. We're going to be back tomorrow. But for now, you can find our archives on Apple's podcast as well as Stitcher. We'd also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help other people find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.